0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. P group void or prohibited by law, see terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: I think one of the big things I want to go through with you is reflect on the journey from the first RLCS where you were the world champion, season one world champion, um, and now to this event. You know, you you gave out the medals at this event.
2: I mean, my journey before Rocket League, funny enough, was playing the game that Sionix developed before Rocket League. And I was playing this since I was like 11 or 12. It was the Supersonic Acrobatic Rocket Power Battle Cars. Like the the car soccer thing has been with me for as long as I can remember.
1: Uh, And you became the early, I I want to say it like God of Rocket League, right? Like at the time, no one could understand how you were doing what you were doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I had I had a big leg up on people because I spent so much time like run the alpha, like I played the alpha a bunch and I was giving tons of feedback. The game took shape very quickly once the first alpha happened. And basically the way it plays
1: hasn't changed, like the physics and everything has not changed since then. Seeing that moment and seeing that trophy lift, did it remind you of the feelings you had back when you won? World Championship and, and the other lands that you won. So, what was going through your mind when you gave when you gave out those medals and you saw that happen for those new players? Mm-hmm. And everything that's running through my head is, oh my god, I, I don't want to mess this up.
2: Oh, what if I what if I trip on stage and <laughs> knock the trophy over and everything shatters and it's a mess? <laughs> I was a bit nervous, um, but then I, then I remembered as I'm watching the grand finals. Um, the way I calmed down from that was I looked at the players and I went, they're going through far more than I'm going through, definitely.
1: Kronovi, uh, welcome to be on the game. Uh, it's good to have you here. We've just come back from Dusseldorf, where we had the World Championship. Uh, we got to hang out a lot there, um, the days before the event, um, and then also on the crowd days, we were spending a lot of time together. I guess first things first: how you feeling post Worlds?
2: Feeling good. I mean, more motivated than ever to you know get in ranked and you know just copy what the pros are doing. Except that didn't work at all. It's <laughs> um, like oh, I think I'm this pro player. I'll play just like the grand
1: finals. And then I've I've owned gold or something bad. You know, it just does not translate the way I thought it would. I think the biggest thing for me is realizing that my teammates aren't Zen and they can't <laughs> just clean up after everything. Um, you have to be a little bit more patient with, you, with your teammates. But um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And I think one of the big things I want to go through with you is reflect on the journey from the first RLCS where you were the world champion, season one world champion, um, and now to this event, you know, you, you gave out the medals at this event. Uh, you were a, a generation before those players, there were some of those players and Farrah, the coach there who you got to compete against. And then obviously some of the players who, who barely got to see you compete probably, or maybe they were, they were preteens when they're watching you compete. Um, so the whole journey of rock league has been a long, long way. So I guess to, to start things off, um, Tell me what your your journey even before Rocket League was like as young Cam.
2: I mean, my journey before Rocket League, funny enough, um, was playing the game that Sonic's developed before Rocket League. I, I was playing this since I was like eleven or twelve. Um, it was the Supersonic Acrobatic Rocket Power Battle Cars. Like the the car soccer thing has been with me for as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, like before that, it was like like I'd like a, like I'd play like spyro or you know smash melee on my gamecube or like pikmin or something but the moment i got a ps3 and i found car soccer that was like okay when i get home off the bus my homework's done my chores are done it's that until dinner time and then that until bed like car soccer was just it hooked me immediately
1: mm-hmm. i guess with with Sarp, um so super sorry i about cars Sarp for short um, you guys had a little competitive community, and and a lot of those competitors are now uh, beloved members of the community. You know, we've got uh, some of the casters were part of that community, some of the early pros, and and now coaches were part of that community. So, talk a little bit about the competitive. I guess you didn't call it esports back then, but the SARP esports community that was there.
2: Yeah, there were people that were very that were very naturally competitive. I mean, it's kind of just the nature of the game. Um, there's so much skill expression so people were hosting like they were playing ranked and at the beginning it was just people were excited to play on you know the top of the leaderboard basically but sarp had a cool feature that i think is what really spawned the the concept of running tournaments even though back then we had no prize pools or anything like that like the most we played for was a yearly tournament um and it was like a 50 ps7 gift card like that was it that was our big world championship every year it was 50 bucks um, and somebody would just front the gift card cause they were generous. But Sarp had a team leaderboard. Like you, that like kind of the way rocket League has clubs now, you mm-hmm. would sign up as a team and have a team name and you could only play with the roster of like, you had like four people on your team and you would mm. queue up like two V two, three V three or four V four with your team and your team would have MMR against another team. And there was a leaderboard for this.
1: Mm.
2: So it was very popular amongst even the small community we had then. And I mean, I would love to see something like that in Rocket League, because if it worked back then with like all 1000 or 500 of us, it, it would work now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would also get those uh, early recognitions of teams who then maybe compete in RLCS, that kind of thing. And you could even use it as like an early qualifier, because I know they have that in Valorant now where they have the the team based tournaments in game, which is like acts as an early open qualification for other tournaments, um, it could definitely be an interesting uh, concept there. But then with with Sarp, you, you came into Rocket League and it was a different game. But obviously you were at that sweet spot of being a young enough player, but also very skilled at the previous game, picked up the new game very well. The right timing was all there. And you became the early, I, I want to say it like God of Rocket League, right? Like at the time, no one could understand how you were doing what you were doing. Um, so talk about that early phase of Rocket League when it was like, have you heard of Cronovi? You know, like that was the mm-hmm. the start of the game.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I had, I had a big leg up on people because I spent so much time like running the alpha. Like I played the alpha a bunch and I was giving tons of feedback. The game took shape very quickly. Once the first alpha happened to like a beta the next year in December. And then the beta where, um, a lot of my stuff went viral. That was the beta the month before the actual release. And mm. that was where the game basically the way it plays hasn't changed. Like the physics and everything has not changed since then. And that was where I think I started to understand the differences between Sarp and Rocket League. And I was just I was just trying stuff that I thought made sense to my brain. Like I watched some of the shots back from like my beta montage and I'm like, wow, these are so ahead of their time. But it was just mm. because the game was allowing me to be creative. And that was mm. all I did back in Sarp. I was like really into it was weird. I was, I was like obsessed with like cool shots and almost like freestyling in that game and freestyling was not very popular, I guess. Um, and it was difficult to do cause you just had no ball control. Like the ball would just bounce off your car and start, but in rocket mm. league, you could actually keep the ball close and do plays that kind of mimicked more actual, like, like soccer dribbling and, and cool tricks. So mm. I was obsessed with doing that in the beta and that went viral. And people were just like, oh my God, I didn't think to play this way. And a lot of that is just because like when the when the game launched, I left a review on Steam. I said, this game is all right. But it said mm-hmm. I had 300 hours played um, because I had access to all the betas and stuff through Steam. And mm-hmm. everyone's like, how does he have so many hours? It's, it's in the first like 10 minutes the game's been out. What is <laughs> this? He's cheating. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, early on, you were the the first pro I sort of obsessed over. You know, I, I watched your streams, um, and it was you and Cooks here, you know, the early two um players. I remember I couldn't play Rocket League because I was at my parents' place around Christmas time, and I would just watch every hour of your stream. And then through that I found you had a little call out for for Gibbs, for Subpar but in HD. I think it was the law back then as well, was one of those people on that list, some of the early mm. SARP vets. Uh, and I went and checked out Coldstream, and then I, I got quite obsessed with Subpar but in HD, and loved their content. um And off the back of that, I got well and truly involved in esports. And around that time, reached out to James Bot, and then through James Bot, got involved in casting and involved in in the community that you used to hang out in or on Teamspeak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then consequently, you were the first pro I met. So from my point of view, there's this this godlike player who, in my mind, was. Unbeatable, you know. You you had this like gift that no one could compare with, um, and then just rocked up in the general chat on Teamspeak and started chatting with you. Um, And so my introduction was very much like from nothing to everything early on. Um, For you back then, did you did you feel that? I don't want to say it in like an egotistical way, but did you feel like you were the best? Did it did it feel like you had this sort of "I can beat anyone" mindset?
2: Um, I definitely. Did just because there were so many games where I would queue up, and if I didn't recognize their name, I was like, I'm gonna beat them by 20 goals because mm. people just and I I would I would go I would just kick off goal people like 20 times in a row who are new to the game because mm. um, kickoffs were a big deal and even back back in the day. So I knew all the diagonal spawns. I knew the mm. fastest way to get to the ball, the angle you want because that translated super well, and that that was a, a part of the game that people just did not understand very well. It was like once the kickoff happened and everyone had floundered near the ball, they could start actually playing it. The way they thought they should, but I, I would score like 15-20 goals on people on kickoff until I played like somebody I recognized, like Marky or Pashi or Cux or you know Gambit or something like that. I'd actually run into somebody that I would always play with back in the day for years in tournament. Mm. And then it would be a real match. And even then, I was still very confident that I could beat them. Um but I felt like I could back up that feeling. Like I I was like rank one on the leaderboards for a long time back in like 2015, 2016. Mm. So it felt, it felt justified, but there were definitely times where I was still nervous to play. There were lots of insanely close matches that I believe that they made their way to to YouTube. And I know lots of people are excited for those. Like I have a really close 1v1 with Gambit. There was a comeback game I have a 1v1 with Gibbs. That's pretty close that a lot of people, when they talk to me, they reference, Oh, I, I remember watching my very first introduction. It was you versus Gibbs. And it's mm-hmm. always such a throwback to hear that. Um, same with like a match with like Pashi as well. I think I lost a game to him at zero seconds. He scored like a zero second winner, and mm. that game people reference a lot too. So people were just really excited to see like the high level gameplay. And I definitely, mm. I definitely felt like a high level player. Um, it was just really rough sometimes. Like the one or two games I would lose. Like they, I took them really. Like I tried to be calm about it, but on stream I'm like, I haven't lost in like four days. <laughs> Um yeah I wonder what I mean, people think of me do they think I'm bad now
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I mean back then it was like if you won and you were at the top you'd get zero points to win right you could get like yeah. 0 or 1 so it was like very top heavy and you didn't have that same rank inflation that you have now where players get 100 points above the the rest of top 100 um but I I remember the scrub killer 1v1 as well like that was a famous one like no one believed that he was 12 and all that kind of stuff it was like the the early days of, oh my God, someone's beating Kronovi was quite exciting. And um off the back of that, you know, you spoke about the early competitive scene. I was speaking with a friend of mine who's from CSGO, and we were talking about the esports that spawned without intending to be esports and then eventually became them. And you look at like early League of Legends and Counter-Strike, you know, I don't think the developers thought we're going to create a whole esports ecosystem. They that just sort of happened over time. And the same thing was true of Rocket League. It was an indie game. It was suddenly blew up in popularity in the early days, and then the esports scene came. Say, like it was like nine months later, right? It was. It wasn't quite it a was full like year after release. Yeah, but I guess for you, it was like a year with the alpha and the beta. But it it came like in the second year of the game was when it really started to form, and consequently, the first RLCS season was exciting because the idea of seeing the best players on LAN. You know, the first time we got to see everyone's faces for a lot of the a lot of the cases, and and also the chance to see. EU versus NA on LAN, not over that massive ping difference. Did you feel a lot of pressure going into that first LAN? Yeah, definitely.
2: We had troubles with our roster that season and we went to a substitute who was not a SART veteran. I believe like over half of the players at the first LAN had played SART before. So that Mm -hmm. was like a a talk at the time and that that talk fell off by season two. But there was a lot of buzz around this player has a thousand hours or 1,500 since Mm -hmm. release. They've been grinding for like eight, nine months, maybe a year. And these other players, they have just as many hours, but they've played years uh, Mm -hmm. of Sarp. So they kind of understand the flow of the game better. And those players had better, um, I would say better team play. Passing was a big concept in Sarp because you could ping pong the ball really quickly. So you would just hit somebody, hit the ball right at them, and then they would redirect it right in the net. Mm -hmm. And that is still a common... Thing to do in Rocket League now. Um, it's not quite at that pace, but it's something new. New players didn't quite understand yet, mm. so it was it was difficult to adapt to our substitute in the first. Um, we had like a month to figure it out, and we did not do well that first month. Me, Latch, and Over Zero had a really rough time, and I definitely felt like we were the underdogs because we were matched up against Flipside, who. Failed to get the one seed that they deserved for EU. They were definitely the far and away best team in EU. But they got the second seed. And we ended up because we struggled with the third seed. So we matched them. And I think everybody expected us to still win. I think the expectation for me to still be like, oh, he's the best player. Mm -hmm. I may not have been on the best team, but I was the best player in some people's eyes. But I didn't feel that way. Like I, I felt like a massive underdog. I felt like this was going to be a super one-sided match and that we were going to go down to losers and it was all going to be chalked. It was going to be over. Um, there was a lot of pressure on me. It, it was it was difficult to, to push that aside and try to still be like a team leader and just tackle the problem in front of us of beating Flipside. Mm.
1: And uh, I mentioned it to you when we were in Dusseldorf, but from my point of view, you look like one of the most confident people there in terms of, in my mind, you were the the this crazy guy who was, knew who was better than everyone. You have quite a good posture, which definitely helped amongst gamers. You know, you stood tall compared to everyone else. Um, you know, you rocked up in shorts. It looked like you're like, yeah, I'm just I'm just here to play some broccoli. You know, I'm super confident, and I think it definitely helped with the, you know, the the over zero hype. You know, like he was quite excitable, and you guys looked a lot more natural on LAN. Um, and you know, at the time, we could all see that the gameplay was way worse on LAN than what you guys could produce at home because it was such a yeah. new experience. Um, but you said to me that you didn't feel confident at all in that way. So talk me through like your first ever LAN experience in terms of like how you felt with the pressure. I mean, when I got there, I was definitely
2: just like telling myself, I had to remind myself constantly, like every like 10 minutes, like just, you know, be be confident, you know, stick your chest out, be initiate conversation with people talk with your teammates, make sure they're all right, remind them of like, hey, we're, we're going to do, we actually did VOD review on my laptop in my hotel room mm. um, of Flipside every single day that we were there, because we were only there like two days early. It's They weren't like big boot camps back then. Um, but anytime we had an opportunity, we VOD reviewed. Uh, we prepped solely and exclusively for our, our round one. That's all we did. Mm. Um, we knew that the Flipside of the best team in the tournament. If we send them to losers, we can beat anybody. And if we beat them, it means we're probably feeling pretty good. And that play style will just work against anyone else. So we, we knew that if we beat them, we could definitely run the bracket and then just see what happens. So mm. I tried to set up as, be- as best the game plan as I could. I'm very lucky that Latch and over zero. They also I don't know how they felt, um, but they seemed confident enough. and They were just really excited to be there. Um, so they, they were motivated to to win our first match. But yeah, the the night before my flight, I was I was in shambles. I mean, I almost didn't want to go. I was telling everyone who was close to me like I this is going to not go well. I'm really nervous. I think I was so nervous that I was late to the airport. And I actually missed the Sonics flight that was booked for me and I was I wasn't even worried about it because I was like I like a huge part of me didn't even want to show up because um, I was I, I felt like I was going to get completely embarrassed to be honest. Um, just the, the the crushing weight of that expectation was was really weighing on me. Um, but I just I figured it out at the airport, got a flight, showed up, and said like I think on the plane there that was where I was like okay I'm actually going, so I need to make the most of it. I got to just quit quit being a baby about it. Got to grow up. Mm-hmm. Like there's two other people counting on me on my team that are looking up to me, and we have practiced for a whole month for what like for me to quit. You know, they, uh-huh. sure this month of practice hasn't gone well, but I'm not just going to give up on on everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's changed so much since then. And and I don't know if we we really knew what was going to be the future of Rockley Esports back then. Um, but you, you went on to lift that trophy, the first ever world champion. It was almost poetic that the the original top player of the game ended up winning the first world championship. Um, and then from there, we've seen so much change in not only Rocket League, but yourself. You know, you've gone through uh, various rosters, you've changed your role, you, you played more supportive, you recently retired and you're now looking uh, at different roles within the community. And um, I just want to ask you, what's been what's been the evolution of Rocket League Esports been like for someone like yourself who's been involved since the start?
2: I think the biggest thing is definitely just like the level of production we're at now, it continually amazes me every year. Like we we just constantly have and, and a lot of that is the work of the the staff, the production at psionics they do a better job every year. They're amazing with feedback. The casters and the analysts are working so hard to put on a, just a better show. I think looking at things through more of a content lens is, is taking time. Like at, at the first few lands, it's just people trying to make sure they aren't, you know, messing up calls, that they're analyzing the game properly. Because there are definitely times where certain, um, certain casters are, are, you know, getting getting roasted on Twitter because they just have like a bad take about a team and they're just like uninformed. And nowadays mm-hmm. it's like you trust everything the caster says with without thinking unless it's Bates, then maybe you might not agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. the content is just so much better now. And I think that's that's really helping draw on a lot of viewers is building these these storylines. And I think that's why season one was so memorable for a lot of people is, is there were a lot of eyes on our team and a lot of eyes on other teams and they mm-hmm. could follow this storyline. And, and it was that that Cinderella storyline. And people just need stuff like that to be able to follow like an eSport. And now we have so many stories going on with so many teams. And Sionics does such a fantastic job of, of telling those stories.
1: Yeah, 100%. And speaking of storylines, you, you gave out the medals at um, the RLCS, which was, um, you know, it's been the honor of so many previous world champions, personalities in the community. Um, Seeing that moment and seeing that uh, that trophy lift, did it remind you of the feelings you had back when you won the world championship and, and the other lands that you won? Um, so, what was going through your mind when you gave when you gave out those medals and you saw that happen for those new players?
2: I mean, I I was fully trying to put myself in their shoes because I, I was a little nervous. I I got asked um, a little bit last minute to do it, so I wasn't really like prepared necessarily. Mm-hmm. And everything that's running through my head is, oh my God, I, I don't want to mess this up. Oh, what if I what if I trip on stage and <laughs> knock the trophy over and everything shatters and it's a mess? <laughs> I was a little bit nervous. Um, but then I, then I remembered as I'm watching the grand finals, um, the way I calmed down from that was I looked at the players and I went, they're going through far more than I'm going through. Definitely. Because I've mm-hmm. been there. I know what that feeling is playing for the grand final. And... I went okay. If if they if they can play on stage and not fall over, I can probably just hand them their medals and not fall <laughs> over. Um, and after after they won, like being that close to them and the trophy, it's it's almost like you can feel the emotion coming off of them. You can see it in their face. You know how much this means to them, especially people like like Farah and Alpha, who were the ones that that after I gave them their medal, they wanted a hug. Um, mm-hmm. For them, this has been a long time coming. Like they've been. Top players, top talent in the scene, and I mean, Farrah's interview was was tear jerking. You know, it was mm. it was like he finally got that validation. Mm. Um, whereas you know, I hand the medal to Zen, and he just looks at me like it's just another day, and he just fist bumps yeah. me. He's <laughs> like, he, I like, I feel like the weight of the moment is completely lost on him because it was just too easy. He hasn't lost yeah. yet. <laughs> true, true.
1: I mean, with Farrah, it's an interesting one because you know, Farrah was there at season three, you know, when he first came on as a player and he's seen the whole scene develop. And like back then, we didn't really have coaches like we do now. And to see him go into that coach role and feel the win as much as he probably would have as a player, I think that's really validated that coach position. You know, it's a position that I've been in and it's a position that you're hoping to potentially go in, in the future is one of the options for you. Um, it's I think that's a, a special moment for uh, the support staff around our esport now because previously it was these three players are your world champion, but I think people have really latched onto I feel like people are more excited for Ferrer winning that world championship than the three players almost now. Uh, so it's interesting how that has bounced around in our esport around the, the coach role. Yeah, the, the the staff behind the team,
2: you know, almost like I think Farah is definitely like a leader of the team, even though he's not he's not like a player. He's mm. definitely, I think their leader. He's the person that they, all the players look to. He's like the, at least from when you look at it from the outside, it's like, he's the the ideal coach. It's like all, all the players mm-hmm. respect him. They look to him. He gives the advice. He's the one that wins the crowds over. He's like the team captain, but he's not on the pitch mm-hmm. uh, is, is the way that I, I envision him. And you know, we didn't, we didn't have that uh, for a long time. It, it took time, but I think the more, a coach like steps into that role and really knocks it out of the park the way Farah did the more it validates that like position and the more teams go okay well maybe we need a coach like that maybe Mm. we need more support staff and and that's how the scene evolves and moves forward for teams to really get the the support that they need because i know there are a lot of teams right even right now that are lacking in coaching supporting
1: staff that if they had it i think they would perform a lot better Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's something I'm interested to see. I know that after watching BDS do what they did uh, with that whole facility set up, having someone like Mew come in who coached in a very unique, different way that we hadn't seen much before in the sport. I think that was a, a huge step for a lot of other teams to try and replicate it. And we've seen it quite a lot this season, right? With, um, you know, the top four in Europe, all using that training facility model quite a lot. Boot camps uh, endpoint did it a lot back when they had success with Seiko. Uh, and then even complexity for example in north america i think they're one of the teams that has shone the most despite you know before them doing as well as they did i don't think people would have expected them to do as well as they did this season right or look as good as they did this season yeah and a lot this
2: year was like an overperformance a little bit in some people's eyes yeah,
1: yeah and and a lot of that i think comes down to the way they've been supported and you know the way they because they moved to north america all they all they're focusing on is performing right and So they move to a training facility, they practice and play and compete at a training facility and it makes a massive difference. Yeah, it's it's something I wish I had as a player. I'm I'm Mm -hmm.
0: jealous of
2: players now. Um, It was a fight to get like a boot camp sometimes, just Mm -hmm. like a one week boot camp. Can can we do this, please? Like playing in person Mm -hmm. and seeing your teammates face to face. It just it's so good for team building and for morale and for building chemistry, and I would have loved to have played in a facility alongside my two teammates for like a whole season—that would, mm-hmm. that definitely helps me. Like, if I, if I had that personally, I would be way less nervous because I do. I'm prone to being a bit nervous, um, and that would just calm me down so
1: much. Like having the proximity of my team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, in the press conferences, I asked Mu about it. I think, and he he said it just accelerates the progress. Um, when I did boot camps in the past, I, I described it as accelerating change because sometimes it accelerates change negatively, right? Like a bad boot, like a boot camp that highlights a problem will also accelerate a team breaking apart, right? Yeah, if you got um,
2: a player who's like raging and throwing yeah, or, stuff and walking out
1: or lazy, you'll see the laziness in person or if there's mm. if there's like friction between two players, it's a lot easier to hide that friction online and then suddenly you go in person. It's like, okay, right now we can see the friction in real life. Um, So yeah, I think boot camps and training facilities accelerate change, but if managed well with a training facility and with psychologists, good coach, good team environment, you can definitely um, develop way faster and much more sustainably. I feel like with, with online, it's much easier to go through waves, isn't it? You know, we all experienced that during COVID, you know, when you're on working online or dealing with life online, you can go through productive waves because you've got so much Uh, freedom, but then suddenly you get lazy because you're like, well, I'm at home, get just lay in bed all day. Don't need to do anything. It's it's easy to get distracted too. Yeah. You you click on one tab too much
2: and suddenly you're on TikTok, YouTube shorts or something like that and time
1: disappears. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of time disappearing, I want to hear which games you've disappeared the most time into and find out about your top five games. Top five Um, games. So we ask everyone who comes on the podcast their top five games um, and you can use whatever category you like. You can go for games that have been the most important in your life games. You've got the most uh, enjoyment out of, or even just um, nostalgia can be a big factor for you, but I want to know what Kronovi's top five games of all time are. Well, I'm definitely going to have a
2: few in the list that are just pure like childhood nostalgia and I'll have some Mm -hmm. recent ones as well. Um, I think I have to put at number one just because it's, it's the only other game that I have thousands upon thousands of hours in. Like Rocket League, I'm sitting at... let me I, I can actually look right now. Um, Rocket League is sitting at 12,300 hours, lifetime. Solid. That is solid. But the other game that has probably at least 6,000 um, is Path of Exile. That game is my like my number one other game i don't play it as much these days anymore but there was a time period where it was like rocket league scrims stream and then instead of like going out and having a hobby or anything like that it was like okay i'm going to log off of this game and i'm going to hop on path and Mm -hmm. that was my like my free time was just spent in a different game um
1: oh fair i I mean what describe the gameplay like it's a rpg right
2: yeah it's an arpg um similar to like you know diablo 2 3 4 it's it's a, a direct competitor um with diablo and the whole series but it's very complicated it's got a lot of systems it's a very in-depth game and it has like a trading economy there's no like you know you kill a monster in diablo you get gold and you just spend the gold at like vendors but in this game there's no actual currency there's everything that drops is like an item that you can craft on stuff with, or you can barter it to other people. So there's this really cool like Wall Street-esque stock exchange trading kind of vibe to it because you're trading this item that might be worth two of this item, but only half of that other item. And you can find really cool exchange rates to like flip with people or you'll find a good deal on something. And then you'll craft one thing on it and sell it for double because people are, they, they just don't know the intricacies of the game like that. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's really complex and i think that's why i have so many hours fair, fair.
1: i mean you said um that would be your number one so you putting that above rocket league um i think if i had to put rocket league on the list of course it
2: would be number one but i was actually going to avoid putting rocket league on because i just assumed that you know with that with, uh, with 12 000 hours and a full career um and playing sarp i feel like it's kind of obvious that that game is like it's just like a part of me. It's like connected to my soul, you know?
1: Yeah, it's not you don't see it as a game in a way. It's like it's a lifestyle. <laughs> I,
2: right. That's actually that's probably why I thought about not putting it on the list because it's it's so much more than a game to me.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a nice idea. So we're not going to have Rock League on the list. That's just assumed. It's it's like a different tier, right? Like it's it's a whole different section of your, your tier list. Um, so we've got Path of Exile. What's coming in at number two then? I think number two, I have to go all the way back
2: for nostalgia um it's definitely the spyro series that Mm -hmm. was because i grew up on on playstation and sony stuff so the platformers that i played were all all the spyro games i think spyro 2 was the first game i beat that game 100 percent without a memory card just had to leave uh leave the console running for a few days so my mom didn't turn (laughs) it off um Oh, people, don't, people
1: don't know what they're missing Like with, with the, <laughs> the memory card style and also like the, the games where you couldn't save, right? Like the right. original Game Boy and NES games and stuff like that where you just play it through and then if you turn it off, you start the beginning. Yeah, like I I did the first le- levels, like the first two, three levels
2: of Spyro 2, like probably 100 times. Uh-huh. Um, until I was like, you know what? I want to see the rest of the game. I'll just leave it running. And then uh-huh. inevitably I'd get like halfway through the game and my mom would turn it off while she was cleaning or something. She's like, "Why is this running. And I'm like, no, <laughs> a week
1: of progress. <laughs> That's amazing. So Spyro 2, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of the uh, people who we know in the Rock League community probably have never even played Spyro, right? Because I feel like it's, it's definitely like a mid 20s person kind of game.
2: Yeah. And they they made the remaster. Um, not too long ago for people, but yeah, I I feel like it's just a, it's a game that if you were there when, if you, if you were around that age when it released and you played it on release, you know, but it, it, it's definitely becoming a bit of a, more of like a hidden gem that it wasn't like super insanely popular the way like, um, you know, like Mario is Mm. because they, they had a ton of stuff coming out around the same time. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I guess it's the, the lot of those kind of games really struggle with the diversity of the modern market. There's so many games out there that Spyro just doesn't cut through. Like a lot, of, like at its time when it first came out, it was such an innovative concept. Whereas if they just repeat that concept now, it doesn't have that same uh, excitement around it because there's so many replicas of that style of game, and a lot of them in in many ways are better. Right? Like yeah. You, you, you can't pretend that Spyro is by far the best platformer game or uh, the story is that good in it and all that kind of stuff because the the creativity of the gaming industry has evolved beyond the the sort of Spyro world right and so a lot yeah, of it plays it's, off it's of hard nostalgia. To with
2: Nintendo for their
1: yeah. level design and mechanics and stuff
2: like they they've always like they started with you know um, Super Mario sixty four and then mm-hmm. like Mario Odyssey is probably the newest one like they're just so innovative. Mm. And it's really hard to compete with that.
1: Yeah. And then when you look at the the sort of RPG games of the last 10 years, you've got it, like much more realistic worlds. And I think a lot of people lean into realism now rather than, and if they're not, they, they go towards Nintendo, right? So Nintendo is the, the cartoony world. And then if you want to play on Sony consoles, you go for the realistic games, right? Yeah. You want the like 60 FPS,
2: 4k ultra, you, you just want looks yeah
1: well spyro great game um definitely got a little bit of nostalgia for a lot of people i'm sure uh what's number three
2: hmm i think number three i want to go to another nostalgic game but i'll save it for number four um because i think the recent experience um and the memories i've made playing um this game with people has been good so it's it's uh, Destiny, Destiny 1 and 2, because I kind of want to group them together because they're not really that much different. Okay, um, we, we only
1: allow people to choose one game in a series on uh, Beyond the Game. You've got to pick.
2: Okay. It's tough because they, same devs, it's like a game as a service thing. It's almost like a, like making me pick between World of Warcraft expansions. Like, it's just World of Warcraft, you know?
1: okay okay so it's, it's not basically like, like it's that. not like with um when i well, normally it's call of duty or pokemon those kind of games it's like you gotta choose one where there's loads of them in a series whereas mm-hmm. destiny is a little less it's uh, very um very linear and there's not much difference
2: between stuff the game just kind of continues to evolve and they only made a sequel because they had Publisher issues and they wanted to update the game to a new engine and stuff like that. Okay. I still I'll think let, if I'll I had let,
1: to pick. will let you have Destiny. I'll let you just No, nah, no.
2: Nah, if I had to pick, I'd go with Destiny 1 because that's where it all started. Um, uh-huh. Playing with, like I, I would uh, I play with some Rocket League people. Me, me, Sad Jr. and Latch would run as a fire team of three sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, me and Sad used to play games before Rocket League because, you know, we would play Sarp together and there was nothing to do for a long time. So we'd play like, you know, League of Legends or... When Destiny came out, we, we loved like finding bugs mm-hmm. in that game. We would walk around, we'd find out of bounds, we would find that we found this one item dupe thing. It wasn't like a dupe. It was like you could harvest a resource and then change zones, load back in, and the resource would still be there. It wouldn't disappear mm-hmm. and you could just keep doing this. And we, we found a ton of bugs that became like very community known like a week before people figured it out. We just wouldn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would, like we would, uh, did like parts of the raids. It's just like a two man using some cool cheat. They're meant for like six people. Um, so we we had a lot of fun with that game. I made a lot of memories and a lot of my friends list on like my PS4 was a lot of like Destiny One people. Even when League really came out, like I, I had just as many Destiny One friends who were like asking, "Hey, do you want to do the raid? Do you want to do some PvP? All oh, like Trials is out this week. Like we need you in here because you're really good." And then I'd have Rocket League people too, so I had like a half and half mix, Hmm. and it it was it was a lot of fun. That's the kind of game where it's like it's like a looter shooter, but the characters are, it's got the sci-fi elements, it's got like the the abilities and like the supers and stuff. It was just like a bunch of things that I like
1: in gaming all blended into one really well. I love it. I mean, uh, the thing I'm getting from you with all of these is that. You're you're a very hardcore gamer. Like you, you take it to the next level. Like you don't just casually play through a game. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You you became a a, a professional gamer. But um, I'm interested to hear if the other two are similar. Like, do you, are all the games you played? I guess Spyro wasn't as hardcore. That was probably a lot more nostalgia and early game experience. But uh, do you describe yourself more as a hardcore gamer then? Yeah, definitely. Like it,
2: it's a main part of like my hobbies. Like I. Hmm. I mean, I wanted to get into game development when I was in college just because I I wanted to be so close to the gaming sphere. But I I pay attention to all the games that come out. I watch, like, tons of games, expos. I I watch a lot of... I I keep track of a lot of games, especially now the way early access works with, like, indie development. Like, I'll I'll watch a game on Steam, see all their updates, and, you know, decide, oh, they need to work on this, that. Maybe this isn't going to, like, hook me in yet. I've... My Steam library has a bunch of games that are, like indie early access that I like will play every time there's like a little tiny update. Um, I'm borderline QA for some people, I swear.
1: <laughs> well, you did say you do like to, to find the little broken bits and the bugs and stuff. Uh, did you find much in rocket league? Cause you said you, were you're part of the alpha and you gave a lot of feedback with what were the kind of bugs in the early, uh, parts of rocket league that you found. Early on,
2: um, it wasn't actually too buggy. It, it was so simple. Um, the worst was when you get weird collision, and your car could sometimes phase through the wall, and you get out of the map. Um, this was a known bug in SARP. You could like sit on the part between the glass and like where the the arena is, and if mm. you got your car half and half on that, because they're different, they're probably different textures. If you get bumped by your own teammate at supersonic, you get shoved through the mesh, mm. and if you Get pushed out of the correct angle and boost up. You could land on top of the map and drive around. But if you got pushed down, you'd you'd fall into the kill plane and you, your car would uh, get exploded and respawn. Because mm. um, that's what happens to the ball if it ever falls out of the map. If it falls too low, is a kill plane and for everything. It just respawns where its uh, spawn point is. So getting out mm. of the map and on top of the stadiums is like, something you could do on every start map in certain spots. And there was a bug for a while in Rocket League where you could just fly supersonic at like a really strange angle,
1: slightly above the crossbar of the nets, and you would just go right out of the map. I remember that people used to do that for um, some like montages and stuff. Right? People would fly out the map, and it was it was kind of like a fun little Easter egg in a way. The way Mm -hmm. people sorry, but obviously it it was considered bugs at the start. I mean, we've had. We've had so many different things come into the game over the years that have been bugs. You Remember the, um, the weird thing where you could slide up the wall really fast. If you like wave dash into the wall at a certain point, it would just like slide you right up to the top. Um, yeah,
2: it kind of still feels that way. Now you just have to make sure you hold power slide. It's like this weird little mechanic. That's just not useful at all. But if you get enough momentum and hold power slide, your car almost like you can tell it wants to like shoot up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as bad
1: anymore. Yeah, I guess that there is lots of little like weird interactions that aren't technically bugs. It's just it's a physics based game, right? So um, things do interact in a weird way. Um, but we've got how many more games? Two more games, right? Um, yeah, to, to fill out. Um, I think Borderlands
2: 2 is definitely up there. It's got to be up there. I spent so much time um, when that game released. Mm hmm. Just a, another looter shooter. Um, I like characters set in fantasy or sci-fi. Uh-huh. And I like loot. I like I like making a build. I like skill trees. Um yeah, looter shooters are like the first person gun version of ARPGs to me. So
1: if it's a good looter shooter, I'll probably like it. If it's a good ARPG, I'll probably like it. Uh you know who our last episode was, right? That we had on here. Uh who was it? We had Brit Brittany Johnson on, who was the actor for Angel in Portland.
2: Oh no way. But <laughs> it's so cool
1: yeah yeah so and she worked at g2 for a while as well which is an org that you're a part of so um yeah so anyone who wants to check that out go check out the last episode but um yeah board i i don't know a huge amount about borderlands but the feeling i get is it's just one of those really immersive worlds which once you once you get into it it feels incredible but if you're not committing to at the start it just looks like any other like story-based game, right? But there's so yeah, much more depth to those Yeah, and it can be a bit silly kind of if you don't buy in. Yeah, they've got like a lot of humor and stuff as well. Hmm. Um. So I, I mean, a very good game. We spoke a lot about that in in uh, in previous episodes. So uh, I think it's definitely one of those games that will keep coppering up in the top five games. Um. And then the last game from you, Crow. What are we what are we thinking? The last game is. Uh,
2: Unfortunately, I just love this game series so much Um, and over over time, they've just continued to polish it better and better. But my number five has to be Elden Ring. But I've been playing from software games since like Dark Souls or the original Dark Souls. So Uh I just I love the genre. Elden Ring was like an absolute 10 out of 10 masterpiece. Um, I like loved exploring the world. I somehow my very first blind playthrough got the ending I wanted. And like I was looking, I spent the whole game looking for the Moonlight Gray Sword because it's in a lot of the Dark Souls games, and it's one of my favorite weapons. Mm-hmm. And I've just happened to stumble into it, and it was like I was already immersed, but then that was like like I got I got little kid excitement when that thing popped in my inventory. I was like, "No way, this is where it is."
0: <laughs> That's sick. Yeah, yeah. It,
2: it's it's so immersive in the sense of scale and fantasy and. The way they, they tell the story in that game. It's not like given to you. You have to mm. you have to find the story out in the world. And I love games like that.
1: Yeah. I think my my closest game genre to that that I really enjoyed was Monster Hunter. So I, I've always I've always been one of those people that I reckon I'd have enjoyed Dark Souls if I got into it at the right time. Now I just find it really hard to pick up games like that because I've got so much of my time taken up by games like Rocket League and other competitive games. And if I pick up a new game, it's normally a Pokemon game. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I just don't like do, those kind of games. You have to invest time. You have to learn the mechanics of it. Otherwise, it's not as enjoyable. Um, or just get good, Gregon. Just, just get, get, get good. good, dude. But getting good takes
2: time, right? Like not, not if you're just built like that. Like, I'm just a natural <laughs> gamer. I need yeah, but, five yeah. minutes.
1: Maybe, maybe to be fair, because of my monster hunter background, <laughs> I might have a bit of a leg up because it's got a similar oh, yeah. kind of dodge mechanics and like reading the pattern mechanics of the boss fights. but. Um, yeah, I've always, you you do great. Yeah. I've always had a lot of respect for people who are sick at Dark Souls and those kind of games. Um, wow, pretty good top five there. Very hardcore. Um, it definitely represents a a hardcore gamer in their mid twenties, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, kind of outing myself a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is one of those where I'm I'm sure a lot of those games are games that people who are our age will be like, oh yeah, I love playing that game if they're a hardcore gamer. So um yeah good list there um I, so i think one of the i wanted to touch on and this is uh something that i think a lot of young players might not have a huge amount of experience with especially now where there's so much more on the line in rocket league i want you to talk a little bit about the experience you had with um being dropped from rosters you know you know orgs and things like that not um keeping you on board whatever the reason is um and then also retirement right Uh, I think this is something that's really tough in eSports is such a short um, career. I mean, you had quite a long career in in comparison to many players, Uh, such a short career, There's so much money involved and when there's no money involved, it's quite scary. Right. Um, I want to talk about your experience of retirement first and then we can go back and talk about some of the, uh, the team's experiences there. Yeah, I mean, the thing for
2: retirement is like I wasn't really sure if I wanted to. But I had felt that my skill level as a player had was no longer granting me the agency to make decisions that I wanted to make when it came to rosters, when it came to talking with sponsors and orgs, like I felt like I had lost like the power dynamic of, oh, like people want to team with me. Or if I ask somebody, hey, I want to team with you, they took me seriously. You know, I lost that and to me that was that was all i all i knew I, and i constantly felt like everywhere i looked like at a certain point i was just going to end up settling and like accepting this like struggle of like being a bubble player you know and just constantly wanting to be there but not being there um and i'd already been playing so long and i was already questioning if i was burned out from like just the mindless scrimming over and over um mm-hmm. for hours a day i was like i don't know if this is worth it maybe i should retire and see if I can enjoy the game in a a content aspect or a coaching aspect instead. Um, So that was really Mm -hmm. the big
1: motivator for that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned about scrims there and for hours a day. How has scrimming and practice changed from when you first started playing to to now? I don't think really it's changed much for a lot of people. Um,
2: Maybe like the way scrims are handled and like the lens they're looked through or like the way people schedule nowadays because it used to just be very informal the way scheduling would work and people would only like schedule against their friends or other top teams but it's still you know make sure you're you know you get on early play a bit of ranked, warm up you have like two three hours of scrims and you may or may not do a vod review after um, some teams would do vod review like every day some would do it like once a week some would just never do it it really depended on like what their coach wanted to do or what the players wanted to do, or if it was just on the players to do it on their own afterwards. I know some teams were like that where they had like kind of like a captain who would look at replays and if they saw something, they would ask their player, "Hey, can you help in Discord? Like this came up and I want your opinion on it." Mm-hmm. Um, but I I really think a lot of scrims for people, it, they're just putting hours in. Like it, it's just they staying fresh, keeping up their mechanics, um, or trying to continue their good habits and a lot of scrims is ironing out your bad habits. Like mm. the way the lens I looked at scrims was, what am i doing wrong? Almost mm. every time. It was like what what are what am i doing right? It's like i i already know like what my job is on the team and if it's working, i don't really need i don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to overthink it. But if there are mm. things that i know i'm doing wrong, i'm constantly like, okay, i need to improve in this area. I'm using too much boost. I'm rotating poorly. I i'm not trusting these touches or maybe i'm hesitating. Like it's always fix the mistakes. And you just have to put in so many hours to iron out bad habits. Mm, interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard, especially in certain regions, that the way things are scheduled is probably the biggest factor. You know, it used to be like day before or on the day, hey, do you fancy a scrim. Um and then like it was Jazzo who was one of the early people to really change that, right? In in NA anyway. Um, so yeah, and then let's let's talk a little bit about um departing from rosters, especially when it's a uh, a dominant roster like you guys, well, I say dominant, but like a top roster like you were at G2, um, what was that experience like of being dropped from a team? Like there's no, there's no easy way to do it, right? There's no, there's no like kind way to, to drop someone and essentially deny them the opportunities to compete at the top. Um, so what was that experience like for you? Um, looking back,
2: like it's, it was so long ago, but definitely in the moment I was, I was like I think I took it a little too personally. I was I was I was devastated, like emotionally because I was very connected to that team and that org. They had been with us since season two. They were like our first real org like ABBA power was they were more of a sponsor than an org, really. But G2 were the ones that came into the scene early. I had been watching them um, because I I watched a lot of other esports as well. Like I watched a lot of League and a lot of CS Mm -hmm. and G2 had teams in both. And so I was super familiar with them. And I was very excited to be part of that org and to kind of just like feel like it got ripped away. Um, Like I was like, I felt kind of like surgically removed without getting a chance to like say my piece or like defend myself. But a lot of it was just because there were a lot of things that weren't working, you know, we season 502 finish season 602 finish. We were okay domestically, but we just could not play on stage together properly without like crumbling. Mm. And everybody decided that it was me um, and I knew that things weren't perfect, but I just assumed maybe a little more transparency would happen with like, hey, we're not happy with the way things are going or hey, we don't, we're not happy with like, you know, your attitude towards a loss or something, um, mm. you know, whatever. I, I I just I didn't know what the problems were until they, they called me in and they're like, hey, so you're just not going to be on the team. And we've already like we spent like a month figuring out how you're not going to be on the team and we've already asked other teams if You know they they made sure that i was taken care of like i had like multiple tryouts lined up that i didn't even know about but that other teams knew about but it was like this giant well-kept secret so that i couldn't fight back is the way it felt Mm. um and that really devastated me it's why i didn't handle it very well i think it's why i took it very personally um but time heals all wounds and i'd like to say that things are okay now um Mm. between everybody so it's all good. But yeah, that was definitely the hardest one. Like, and that, that taught me a lot about the way team dynamics work, the way it's even in an environment where everybody trusts each other. And I would always hope that people were transparent with me. And that was the biggest thing I said, I said, you can tell me bad news. As long as you're transparent about it and honest with me about it, I'm never gonna be mad at you. I'm mm. mad at the situation, but I'm never mad at you. Um, I can handle things in a business way. I would always tell people that and then they still did it. And then of course, I didn't handle it in a business way, mm. unfortunately. Um, it was rough, but after going through that now it's like, there's probably nothing else that could possibly like make me feel like that again. Like it was pretty bad. So that prepared me for every other future thing with any org or any teammates.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because, um, when I left Vitality, I knew it was coming. Um, I was part of the process of getting alpha on board. And I knew that once it was a full French roster, I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, like you no longer can have an English speaking coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it'd been two years and so on and so on. Um, and then with guild, like the timing, it was it was kind of mutual, you know. It's like this isn't working anymore. Um, try out a new coach, that kind of thing. Um, with Dark Zero, I knew that they were probably gonna leave the scene because it was too expensive, they weren't getting what they wanted out of it. It was like, it was fine. Even though it was annoying, it was fine. The one that blindsided me was as a talent, which is interestingly, was when I got dropped from the desk. And so I know that feeling of like. It feels so weird, and then also it like it defines you for a while afterwards, right? Like if you stream or if someone replies to you, or if you talk to anyone, anyone, it, it, people just bring it up because people don't know what to say, right? They're like, "Ah, oh, it's a shame that you got you got dropped," or "It's a shame that that happened." I, I wish you were still on that team, or you know, like if you do well, it's like you did well as a revenge story to them. It's like every yeah. your your life then becomes about that storyline of how you got dropped and how you're now fighting back. Yeah and, um, and you'd
2: rather just move on and like, yeah.
1: not not think about it anymore you know Yeah and, and obviously you're you're then still in the scene right you're you're playing for another team so whenever RLCS is on you're seeing your old team it's like you're trying to get over an ex but you have to spend all the time around your ex right like you can't right, yeah you can't deal with it and so that becomes quite tricky um so I completely get it now and that's probably been the the most eye opening experience for me was experiencing that and knowing how hard it is, especially for players you then don't find a team to move on, right? Because that was the the situation for me. It's like, I, I look at people like Astral and Extra and all these guys who are on top teams and then suddenly they lose their spot. And it's like, right, now what's next, right? And so they have to wait out for the next season or whatever. And it's it's brutal. The esports uh, world is brutal for these players. Yeah, so I guess like, sometimes they're not taken care of, you know? And they're, they're doing a good job, I think, you know, maintaining
2: like scrims in practice. Um... Mm. But and that's you know that, that's why I was very looking back grateful to the way like the the guys handled it with, with mm. kicking me it was like they had made sure I was taken care of. I had a team. I may I may I got to play them in the semifinals that very next season. So like mm. I was I was okay. Um, but mm. yeah, definitely some of those is just like the writing on the wall is there. And now in current esports, unless you're really in the know, like player like fans and stuff, they don't see the writing on the wall. Or no. players nowadays, it's like oh we only got. Second place at this major um i'm gonna leave, and it's it just feels so much more impatient now they don't want to stick around and make things work, which was a big tenant we had back in the day, like I remember squishy talking about it in the cloud nine days, you know, just like that it, the important factors of like sticking together, working it out no matter what mm. um until it like it really really isn't working, and that's why like he's only been on like three rosters in his life, you know. Yeah, he was our sub on G2, and then he was with C9, and then he was with NRG, and like that's it. He hasn't been on many teams because he he believes in in working things out. And I feel like more and more players these days just don't.
1: Yeah, I think that's you could see that this most recent worlds, how many rosters have done well by sticking together, right? Like you could see the the K Corp, the even like Gen G, like throughout the season, like they didn't they didn't end on the best note with that that performance, but the fact that that was an underperformance and they still made top eight, you know, like that's, that's what sticking together does, you know, liquid sticking together as that team for so long, making top four, uh, it's definitely becoming more of a thing. I mean, Falcons even, right? Like look at those guys, they've gone through the adversity of a new team coming in and sealing their spots for majors and they still, uh, made that top eight. So, um, yeah, I definitely see that as a, as a future. I think that like going back to the training facility model, I definitely see that in combination with sticking together long term being that like dream combo. Um so we'll see that's how that's where that... I want it to go. That's where I yeah. always wanted it to go as a player.
2: And I, I hope the players in the current era in the future era get that for them.
1: So I guess um last thing on that note is what advice would you give to the current players out there from all your experience on how to, you know, we're about to go to a big off season, how to deal with that uh potential uh turmoil for them. I mean the biggest thing
2: I think for players is to remain like as friendly as you can with everybody. There's no sense in burning bridges just because you don't like enjoy playing with a player or like getting upset over Rocket League. Like it's it's difficult and it's our job and we have thousands of hours in this game. But it's still a game and you never know when a player is going to be able to fix things. Um, we're all everyone's like super young. Some some players mature over the course of like a year and suddenly they're like a different person and they're playing better. But you mm-hmm. you've burned that bridge with them because you know you didn't handle replacing them or being transparent with them or whatever and some players as well no matter what you do no matter how much you may like let them down easy on a team they're still going to be upset they're gonna be really upset they may not be very professional and you have to just forgive them and give them the chance to like eventually come back and go hey my bad Mm. and that means that you just have more connections to everybody and the more connections you have the more content you can do the more storylines you can create um unless you really want that like these two people hate each other, boxing match rivalry. And if you're going for that, sure, burn all the bridges you want. But good communication, positive oriented communication, and just letting people know that what you're doing is just because you want to be like on the best team in the world. And that's just that it's just your, your opinion that the two players you want to play with are who you think are the best. And that, that that's all as far as it goes. It's another personal, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is remembering that nothing's personal and that you know we're, we're all trying to do our best and sometimes that's together sometimes that's against each other um but i'm interested to see what happens in this off season anyway um and especially with a big shuffle to try and beat vitality but um crow i think uh, we'll call it there um i'm excited to see what the future holds for you you know what what big projects you got next um especially you know seeing you coaching would be an amazing thing you're such a wise rocket league player. And I mean, we've seen how big that's been in the in the scene now with players like Ferrer coming through. Yeah, I, want, I want to be the
2: N.A. Ferrer so bad.
1: I'm so inspired. <laughs> yeah, I think Farah is probably the biggest inspiration from from that event. Like you said, Zen is like happy go lucky. He doesn't really understand why um, why he's so good necessarily. But Farah is like grinded his way back to the to the top through through the coaching position. So. What an inspiration. We all want to be like Ferrer. That's <laughs> that's the, the key message here. That we might see a load of players retiring early to try and be like Vera. Um, But it's been amazing chatting to you. And and obviously, like I mentioned before, you were such a big factor for me at the start. And so to see you still involved and also seeing you at Dusseldorf, having so many pictures with people being such a big influence on so many Rock League fans, players' lives um, in those early days. And hopefully you can find a way to continue that post uh, playing um, now with your content or coaching or or whatever it is for you. Um, So thank you very much for sharing your story and everything that's gone on and the advice Um, and we end the podcast with the same question. And that's what does gaming mean to you? To me, gaming used to mean an escape
2: from just not enjoying things in my personal life. But Mm. because of gaming, I got to meet so many people that are amazing that I connected with that i grew to like more than like the people that i would meet in real life and so to me gaming is a community it's it's people that i love to connect with and share experiences with and have fun with oh amazing
0: thank you very much sports social podcast network it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win